This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. This on? Hello? Hello? We're all science people. Science! Exactly. Evolution does some pretty funky things. That is a false fact. The old question in science is how do you know that? Achievement equals skill times effort. That's the recipe for success. I'm about to show you something so cool it'll blow your mind. We can make the world better for everybody. Starting now. Welcome, welcome to Science Rules. I'm your host, Bill Nye. This is the show where science rules. It's a call-in show if you want to be on the show, and I hope you do. Leave us a voicemail at 201-472-0785 here in the United States, or go to askbillnye.com anywhere in the world. You can also check me out on all the social media that the kids use to find out about our upcoming guests. And today, I am joined once again by science writer, editor, and dear friend, seriously, Corey S. Powell. Hello, Corey. Hello, Bill. Well, this past year has been a pretty unsettling one for all of us. And uh, one weird side effect, our sense of time is totally scrambled. We're all having a hard time wrapping our heads around what is what is now, what day is it, what week is it. We're looking for some sense of order in the chaos. And I'm hoping that this week's guest can help us by giving us a different perspective on time. She is a horologist, that's H-O-R-O, from the Greek word for time. Yes, yes, my friends. Today, our guest is Dr. Rebecca Struthers. She is a watchmaker and horologist, and her upcoming book is called Hands of Time, the Story of Horology in Seven Watches. Dr. Rebecca Struthers, welcome to Science Rules. May I call you Rebecca? Of course. Yes. Thank you for having me. So what what time is it where you are? Um, It's just gone half past seven in the evening. Uh, So you're you're living in the future. You're living in the evening. We are, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So uh, Corey is in the Eastern time zone in North America, and I'm in the Pacific time zone in North America. And we know all about time zones because we measure time. And everybody, you can make a very strong argument that the invention of clocks and watches is much more influential than the invention of the wheel. If you live where a tree falls over, you can invent a wheel. A round thing rolls downhill. But inventing a clock, oh my goodness. So, Dr. Struthers, you study time. 
I do. I study time and watchmaking. So I initially trained as a well, a jeweler and silversmith, then a practicing watchmaker and restorer. And now I'm a historian as well. So I study the whole history of time and how we discovered it and got to this point that we're in today. So you study the time of time. <laughs> the <laughs> yes. amount of time of time. Messer. <laughs> so when you say watchmaking, Rebecca, you're talking about mechanical watches, right? Yes, I am. Yeah. So I specifically look at the mechanical side of things, which is my my real interest, I suppose. And out of that, um, in restoration, it's kind of watches made between sort of 1750 and 1820. So kind of the early stuff is what I'm really interested in. But we do, uh, we make watches at the moment now. So we're still doing it in the 21st century. It's amazing. These tiny, tiny little machines <laughs> making these tiny little gears, tiny little things. So when you say 1750, yes. I, like anyone else, think of John Harrison. Yeah, absolutely. Kind of the reign of, or the introduction of chronometers. So that was our first super accurate watches. So they've been around sort of since the turn of the 16th century, but hadn't been very accurate up until that point. Uh, the real step towards accuracy start towards the end of the 17th century and then into the 18th century. And John Harrison was where we finally get it spot on with the engineering of watches. So maybe you can fill in our listeners a little bit about the problem that John Harrison solved yeah. and, and why and why couldn't anybody solve it before then? Um, well, John Harrison solved the longitude problem, is credited with solving the longitude problem, which basically is how we position ourselves on a map whilst traveling in open ocean. Um, when you're on land, you can quite easily reference yourself based on your position by the stars or using celestial navigation. But in the open ocean, when you're moving and you don't have a fixed reference point, it becomes a lot more challenging. Uh, latitude, which is the uh, position north and south of the equator, is quite easy to um, spot Polaris you got it <laughs> yeah exactly so you've got you've got that one down but longitude on the other hand which is your east west position is a lot more challenging so um, the best way to have done that was to or, or Harrison theorized was to have a very accurate timekeeper so you could keep a record of your time back home at your home port which obviously you could get really accurately because you're on dry land and then you could compare the local solar time to the um, time on your your clock of your home port and compare the two to, to ascertain the exact time and consequently where in the world you were. Um, and that kind of came out about there was a, a tragic accident at the turn of the 18th century in which a fleet of uh, British Navy vessels crashed off the Isles of Scilly and somewhere in the region of 2,000 sailors' lives were lost. It's just kind of cool to think about. If you, if you know how high the sun is expected to be above the horizon, that is to say, if you know the time of year, you can figure out how far you are north or south of the equator by waiting for the sun to be the highest it is in the sky that day, noon, solar noon. You wait for that moment, okay, then you can figure out your, your latitude, your north and southness. But figuring out your east and westness without a clock is some kind of difficult because the trackless ocean just doesn't tell you where you are. So how did you get into mechanical clocks, Rebecca? What's the deal? It was a long time ago is all I'm saying, the 1750s. <laughs> um, so me personally, I got into them in kind of a roundabout way. Um, I was at school and I I, yeah, I really struggled at school. And I think I was the sort of kid who was drawn between art and science. And we were taught them in very different ways, very different subjects. And the sort of school I went to, it's kind of, you're a doctor, a lawyer, or a failure. 
You know, there wasn't such a thing as a successful career in the arts. So I kind of tried to crowbar myself into science, but that didn't quite fit. And then, yeah, I just got a bit lost and I actually dropped out at 17 and ran away to art school. I just went the complete opposite end of the spectrum. But um, yeah, I started studying jewellery and silversmithing. And then it was kind of through that I was missing the the structure, I suppose, and the rigidity of engineering and that side of things. And um, I started incorporating basic, very, very basic automata and articulation in my jewellery. And um, through what that... What was the word you just threw out there? Automata? Say that Automata. So that's um, basic mechanisms that move pieces. You were designing kinetic jewelry or what were you doing? Kind of, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Effectively, kind of like kinetic jewelry. Okay. Um, I, and cool. just fell into it. But at this point, I, I mean, I'd never even heard of horology. It was completely off my radar. If you just said watchmaking, I'd have thought changing watch batteries. Um, it's a foreign subject to me. But they happened to teach it at the same college that I was at. And some of the watchmaking students saw my work and thought, oh, Rebecca, you should check out the horology course. We think you'd like it. So um, I went for a tour of the workshop and it was just magic. It was like everything fell together. It's the perfect combination of art and design and engineering. And it brings a whole lot together under one subject. And history too, which I love. So everything that I love came together and that was it. I've never looked back. <laughs> so uh, how does a mechanical watch keep time? How does it do it? Uh, well, probably the best way to do it is to go through how a mechanical watch functions. So if we start off with the most basic type of mechanical watch, it's manual wind. So instead of automatic wear, it winds itself on your wrist. Manual wind needs you to physically wind up the watch. And um, the most basic so kind of mechanism... So when someone describes somebody else as being emotionally wound up... <laughs> yeah, like a watch. <laughs> it's based on winding a watch with your thumb and index finger. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. I mean, so for the, yeah, those of us who grew up before digital watches, that's all a watch was. A cheap watch was a wind up watch. Absolutely. Yeah. And um, my favorite kind of watches as well. So I really like that kind of two way relationship you have with them. You kind of bond with them, having to wind them up every day. They need you to function. So I, yeah, I quite like the romance of that side of mechanical watchmaking. But um, yeah, in terms of how they operate, Mechanical watches need something, uh, a spring called a mainspring. And that spring is kind of, it's tall and thin, so a bit like a ribbon, but kind of coiled into a loose spiral, um, flat spiral, and that is wound up into a barrel. Um, so if you call up a spring, obviously it's going to want to pull out the opposite way. Um, so we pin the spring in the centre of the barrel in an arbour, and again on the outside of the barrel. And when and you when say you wind arbor, up, this is uh, something a, mach a machinist uses. Um, it, the arbor within a watch is almost like, um, I suppose it's almost like a pivot, kind of a, a long piece of, oh, they're not that long, I suppose. In watchmaking, you're talking maybe something that's three, four millimeters long in a large watch. Oh, that's watch. huge. Three yeah, millimeters. Massive, My goodness, massive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. park a car in there. Yeah. yeah some um, might call it a tenth of an inch, even if you're an American. Yeah. Sorry. Yes. Um, <laughs> forgetting my audience. <laughs> Did you grow up with inches and then make the transition to millimeters or has watchmaking always been in millimeters? Um, watchmaking now generally is in millimeters. Used to be in French inches. That was uh, the old measurement, which don't ask me to convert that off the top of my head. <laughs> um, yes, that's another slight variation, but uh, it's generally metric now. Yeah. So anyway, 
this the arbor is the anchor for one end of the spring. Is that yeah, right? In the very center. So when you wind up the watch, it winds the spring around this arbor really tightly. Um, and because it's hooked at the other end of the barrel, when you let that go, the spring pulls back on itself and tries to pull the hooking round on the outside of the barrel, causing the barrel to spin. So is energy what- is released. Mm-hmm. Energy yeah. stored in the spring. The energy is coming out of the spring, and then ha- what keeps it from just going and uh, unwinding instantly? Well, that's a combination of there's um, a ratchet on it that stops it from suddenly unwinding. But the most important bit as well we have is the gear train, which is a series of wheels and pinions that gears down this energy to um, the right rotations for us to be able to tell the time. So you've got one that drives a hand that turns around once every 12 hours, another that turns around once every 60 minutes, and your second hand that turns around once every 60 seconds. So you've got the train that follows. There's teeth on the outside of that barrel that engage in, in another pinion and then a wheel and a pinion and a wheel that goes right the way down but to the how other do end. We keep it, how do we keep the energy from just coming, spinning out all at one moment? Well, this is moment. at the other There's end. There's another it. word <laughs> yeah. for time. Mm. Yeah, wow. Well, time is the most common noun in the English language as well. So that's that's another one do, for do, you. But, do, 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 <laughs> it comes on. But um, yeah, so yeah, at the other end of the train, we have something called the escapement. And that's the bit that controls the escape of power from the mainspring. The so escapement. Yes, yeah, so that's the escaping bit. Um, And that's the bit that ticks. So the escapement is kind of a a pair of pallets on a lever that are knocked backwards and forwards and allow one tooth at a time of the escape wheel to drop through. And the escape wheel is the final wheel at the end of this gear train. Um, And the lever is knocked backwards and forwards by something called the balance, which has a pin underneath it called the impulse pin. And that uh, the balance oscillates backwards and forwards, vibrates, and knocks this lever backwards and forwards, which allows the tooth, the teeth of the escape wheel one at a time to just drop through the pallets. What is the shape of the gear tooth or the escapement tooth or the impulse jammer balance grab <laughs> thing? Well, the escapement, because it's such an important part of the watch, um, by controlling the release of power, it controls the rate the watch runs and whether or not it keeps time at all. Um, Because of that, it's been a source of constant innovation and new inventions throughout the years. The most common escapement that we have in watches today is something called a Swiss lever or a club tooth lever. Um, And it has less teeth on it than any of the other wheels, um, usually 15 off the top of my head. Um, and they're wider teeth and they almost kind of scoop up in the shape of a boot, I suppose, literally like a clubbed boot um, with a sharp angle on them and an edge on the top of the tooth. So it's got a flat top to the tooth. And, and this that is flat something top, you guys worked out in the 1700s? Um, the English lever was the first, so the few lever escapements. But yeah, it was the end of the 18th century we developed oh, the first only, only lever escapement. Yeah, yeah. I interrupted <laughs> you. So, so the tooth is shaped. Like a boot. Go ahead. It's got, yeah, like a boot with a flat sole to it, and it's the flat sole that engages with another flat surface on the palette, which we call the entrance and exit face of the palette. And it's this relationship between those two angles that not only allow the tooth to slide off and the next one move through, but also gives impulse back to the escapement and uh, the balance as it oscillates. It gives it a push. It yeah, not only, yeah, so they it push not only each slows other. it down, it gives mm. it a pu- an impulse. Okay, so let me ask you this. What's going on here is friction. One tooth is rubbing against the other. The escapement balance is gently touching the wheel that it's engaged with. Uh, Doesn't it just wear out fast? And then what do you all do to keep it from wearing out fast? 
Well, the friction is a really important point when it comes to escapements, and that's one of the biggest enemies of watchmaking. And one of the things that over the centuries we've really kind of looked into new ways to reduce friction as much as possible. Um, the lever escapement is also something called a detached escapement, which was the most recent um, major shift in watchmaking, which means that as the balance oscillates, for the majority of its oscillation, it's not in contact with the escapement at all. So the escapement is at rest in between each beat, um, which reduces the amount of friction. Um, but you do get before that, we had the uh, frictional rest escapement. So you had something called a cylinder and something else called a verge, where the oscillating balance was in constant engagement with the escape wheel, which caused a lot of friction and obviously wasn't as accurate. Um, we do obviously, try to, obviously, yeah. everyone, obviously, yes, yeah. <laughs> no, but hang on. And I looked at your website, and you guys specialize, you and your husband specialize in the English escapement, yes, Is that yeah. Right? So that's um, similar to the Swiss lever, um, only the teeth are like shaped like sharp points rather than having that top flat top to them. And so, and that was just the early, that was the first idea, and it worked well enough. Does did John Harrison's clocks have that sort of escapement? That was a verge. Um, a verge. So that was a kind of frictional rest escape. Right. Yeah. So, so what? So, yeah. So what was it that John Harrison figured out that allowed him to maintain time in a way that people could not do before that? Which part of this whole process was was he involved in? So the big advancements that Harrison made were a combination of, I mean, he started out looking at clocks and the final um, H4 was actually a kind of a large pocket watch, the first chronometer. Um, so it was, what's the difference between a watch, a clock and a chronometer? So a uh, watch is um, something small and portable that you can wear. Um, a clock is something that's stationary, a static thing. And a chronometer is just either a watch or a clock that is has been tested in a combination of different positions, different temperatures, and being able to perform to an incredibly high standard throughout all kinds of adverse conditions. What's that standard? Um, the COSC standard. Now I'd need to look it up. <laughs> but it's very accurate. But it's, it's, but, it's, 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 but it's out there. It's written down. It's probably long. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, definitely. From memory, I would say John Harrison's clock in 1750 on board a ship, tossed around on the trackless ocean, was accurate to three seconds a month. Is that right? Yep. That's yeah. That's there about right. It was a few minutes over the course of the entire journey. Wow. So he, just, so he not only had to manage phenomenal. all that friction mm. that you were talking about, but also all the tossing and pitching from the waves mm -hmm. and not affect any of that mechanism. Yeah, and extremes of temperature as well. Obviously, in the open ocean, your temperature between day and night varies quite a lot. Um, so that's some of Harrison's incredible advances were through temperature compensating. So uh, combining different metals with different thermal expansion and contraction properties to try and even out these variations. Um, and also in um, components like the verge, the... Um, the flags of the uh, the verge, which are the bits that engage with the escape wheel, like the pallets and a lever, um, he made them out of diamond. So again, uh, to so reduce the, friction and improve wear. So this gets into this uh, kooky business. You'll, in, if you're of my age, well, this watch has 17 jewels. Right. right. So where jewels, where are the jewels, and what do the jewels yeah. do? So the jewels in most watches are actually corundum, so um, ruby or sapphire, and these days are synthetic. So we use them as bearings, um, as bearing surfaces, because they're so incredibly hard wearing and low friction. So they used to be just made out of brass, um, and the very early watches were actually made out of iron, complete iron, which um, 
for magnetic reasons isn't the best um, material. Yeah, going back to those early sort of 16th century watches and, and the clocks before them. But brass bearings would wear through and um, that kind of reduces the life and running order of a watch. So it was the beginning again of the 18th century in England that watchmakers kind of discovered that if you could cut and fashion rubies and use them as a um, bearing surface for a pivot, which is the thing that the each wheel in the, the gear train sits on, um, you could reduce the amount of wear and increase the life expectancy of the watch. And we carried on using natural jewels um, until the second half of the 19th century when we perfected the art of making synthetic ones, which are in modern watches. And so are, 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 there, are there 17 wheels? Is that why there are 17 jewels? No, it's um, there are, you've got a center wheel, a third wheel, your fourth wheel and your escape wheel, but they have a jaw top and bottom. Um, the pallets in a Swiss lever or an English lever, most of them are jewels too. So that's another two jewels and the pallets have top and bottom jewels. Um, you also have shock settings on the balance sometimes too. So you've got two jewels on the top and two jewels on the bottom, which have a spring over the top of them, which bounce. So if you drop <laughs> your watch, it um, protects it. This is so cool. <laughs> Stick around for more science rules after this. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. Science Rules is back. Why do you stick with these mechanical clocks, mechanical watches, when we have these extraordinary electronic timekeeping setups? Why do you stick with the mechanical stuff? Yeah, I get there are much more accurate timekeepers around. There are atomic timekeepers now as well. Um, but where's the romance in that for me? There's just, <laughs> there's just something about yeah, engineering You don't want to throw up little, little just... cesium atoms in your cesium <laughs> fountain uh, atomic clock? Yeah, in my workshop. Yeah. Um, yeah, I just for me, I just love the mechanics of and just the ingenuity, the sheer ingenuity of watches, that these things have been around for over 500 years, the first mechanical clocks originated from the 14th century. And um, that some of these, I mean, the oldest known clock in the world was made in 1386. And it's still it running. Um, and what, that was. What, the, what, what, what? Wait, wait, yeah, where, where is <laughs> yeah. it? And what is it? Salisbury Cathedral. Um, and obviously, it's been worked on over the years. It hasn't just been left to run um, since 1386 without any intervention. So, some, somebody um, wound it since then? Yeah, just a couple of times. Yeah, um, yeah. so these things can, with the right help and assistance, still keep going. And I think that's 
maybe part of it with me technology as well. It's with the tech side of things and like quartz watches, technology is changing so quickly that these things become obsolete. Whereas the mechanical side of things, providing that you've got watchmakers who know how to restore them for potentially hundreds, if not thousands of years to come, the things that we make today will still be able to be worn and used. Yeah, it's the ingenuity of creating something. So I've worked on watches that people brought in that maybe it's their granddads or whatever, or they've had it since the 1970s and they've never serviced it. And they're coming in saying, it's just stopped working. Like, what's happened? And I'm thinking, that's what, like 50 years? You've not serviced that watch, you've been wearing it every day. So for 50 years, you've been winding and running that watch every single day. And for 50 years, it's kept the time without any other kind of human intervention beyond winding it. I mean, name another machine that's capable of performing to that kind of level. It's Corey, um... go ahead. <laughs> uh, the closest thing that comes to mind is I mean, the human body itself. I mean, what you're describing is something <laughs> yeah. that has like the same lifetime of operation as a person. So what do you do to restore a watch, Rebecca? Um, it depends on what's happened to it. So um, providing it's well looked after, servicing it just involves taking it apart, cleaning it all back, cleaning back the oils as well, so use various oils to help reduce friction too. Um, but they can congeal or dry out over time. Um, and then putting it back together, cleaning it, putting it back together and re-oiling it. But obviously if something's happened to it, if someone's dropped it, if someone's jumped in the swimming pool on holiday with it, um if someone's run over it in a car or i've even had one that was kept in a barn and dropped on the floor and got trampled by cattle um there's all sorts of things that can happen to watches um so that obviously those sort of restoration projects are a lot more involved and anything that's vintage or antique now there's no spare parts supply so you have to make a lot of the replacement parts on your website i saw you guys manufacturing these tiny gears, tiny little bearings, little tiny cool little things. (laughs) Now, uh, a couple things. You know, I have this history with timekeeping because of my dad. My father was uh, a prisoner of war in World War II, and the Japanese military confiscated all their jewelry, including their watches, and he got interested in sundials. Did you ever get interested in sundials? Um, I actually got a ring dial for Christmas, but um, it's so What's dark and bleak. A ring dial is a portable sundial. So that's um, a series of brass rings in this case that you open out and there's a little pinhole uh, slider that you adjust to the right time of the year and you hold it up to the light and it, the light shines on um, the time, roughly. I'm hoping, but I haven't been able to try it yet because it's been too cloudy. <laughs> How do you calibrate it? How do you make sure that you've set it up correctly? Um, the instructions. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> this is a very popular instrument that she's describing in for those of us into gnomonics the the gnomon is speaking of timekeeping nouns the gnomon is what casts a shadow on a sundial so gnomonics is the study of sundials what have you so now, now uh, bill you and you and your sundials i want to hear more about you and your sundials because you have a good relationship with them well we have a we have a horologist on the show but do you know uh rebecca we have sundials on mars you heard this story wow no i did not know that so That's anyway i was in engineering school i took one class from this very famous astronomer named carl sagan through this connection of people that who had kids who watched the television show I worked on, I got invited to a meeting about the uh, rovers that were going to Mars in 2004, well, to land in 2004, but the two rovers that became Spirit and uh, got named Spirit and Opportunity. 
And they have on them this old photographer trick to get the colors right. The, a trick is to look at shadows. So uh, we say this all the time. If you haven't stopped to think about it and you're able-bodied, you have eyesight, uh, you can tell the difference between room light, in, inside light, and exterior light. And it's a lot of it is the blue color that's added to outside outdoor light from the Earth's sky. It's blue. It's not the sun is not the only source of light when you're outdoors. It's the sun and the and the clouds or the blue sky. Anyway, looking at the shadows on Mars, you can you can see the orange color of the Martian sky. So they had this metal post going to Mars doing nothing but casting a shadow. Like they didn't want to get the colors wrong the way they had in 1976 with the Viking landers. They had the colors wrong for a couple of days. Uh, anyway, so I said, my dad had been, had been into sundials. I was just jumping up and down in this meeting, waving my arms. You guys, we got to make this into a sundial. Come on. And so I was not the first guy to suggest it be a sundial, but apparently I was the first guy jumping up and down, waving his arms about it. <laughs> There's an inscription on the side of these things. On three, there, We also put one on the Curiosity rover, which landed in 2012. It says, to those who visit here, we wish a safe journey and the joy of discovery. Like, whoa, dude. Yeah. So it's cool. optimistic that someone will visit there and someone will feel the J-O-D, the joy of discovery. <laughs> but here's another question that came up that's big fun. How are you going to reckon time on Mars? Why did you all, in horology, Rebecca, why did you decide that there's 60 seconds in a minute and 60 minutes in an hour and 24 hours in a day? Why? Did, who came up with that, people? Um, well, a lot of it, obviously, we don't have control over some of these factors. We don't have any control <laughs> over how long it takes for the passage between day and night and the, the moon revolving around the Earth and the Earth around the sun. These things happen, and there'll be a certain number of passages of, of light and darks every time we go on one full. Well, the, the transit of the Earth around the sun is a tropical year, but we already have, even on Earth, we have different kinds of times. We have a tropical year, we have a sidereal year, and the sidereal What's the day. by the way? So a tropical year is based around the Earth returning to the same points um, on its transit around the sun as measured by the sun. And sidereal year is the same thing, but using a distant star as a reference point instead of our sun. So the, the difference works out. A sidereal day is 23 hours and 56 minutes. It's a little so short. So there's not much in yeah. it, but yeah, well, it's slight variation, which just goes to show there's different times on Earth, let alone on Mars. So it'll be a whole new time system. So should that. it be 60 seconds to a minute? Should it be Should it be 100 seconds? Should it be... Should, are there Mars hours? And so this got into a whole thing. And I say all the time, it's like people that learn to speak Klingon, you know, from yeah. that story. Except yeah. it's real. Except it would be a real problem. Yeah. And so uh, we, you know, we ended up with the 60 seconds and hours uh, uh, and minutes, rather. Because uh, the Babylonians apparently thought 60 was great. You can divide yeah. it by two, Threes. three, four, five, mm -hmm. six. Counting yeah. on your fingers and knuckles. It and and, and the word moment used to be a specific amount of time. It used to be 90 seconds. There were, was it 40 moments in an, in an hour? Yeah. And um, talking of 100 seconds, um, that happened. The French Revolutionary calendar and decimal time, we actually had that kind of dividing everything into tens instead of into 60s. But it um, didn't catch on. 
No, it didn't, which is kind of a shame in a, a way. Um, although, it, yeah, it'd be a very unusual system. There are actual watches and clocks as well that run to decimal time, which are strange-looking creations. But um, Still today, they're, they're modern decimal time clocks? Um, I th- there are surviving ones from okay. the French Revolution. Um, uh-huh. yeah. But I don't know. So, there's probably someone out there in a shed still making decimal <laughs> watches. There's someone in a shed doing everything. You can make a watch reckon uh metric time you can right yeah yeah, yeah. you can make a all watch. in the gearing yeah so all in the gearing you throw this out so let me ask you a couple things you're making a, a watch right now what is the what is the 248 or 248 project um project 248 we we started off with that as a nickname but i think it's kind of sticking now um two stood for two watchmakers two minds four are four hands and eight was stood, standing for a watchmaker's eight millimeter lathe which is one of the most traditional kinds of watchmaking lathe that we use um eight millimeter means the collet size so that's the actual um piece the biggest that- thing it can hold is eight millimeters yeah, thereabouts. Yeah. So yeah. The, the collet, the diameter of the collet um, is the thing that you put your work into when you're turning it. And you can turn that with a cross slide or literally by hand with a graver. Um, and you position, do the whole thing by hand. And uh, yeah, so that's where that came from. And we decided to set ourselves a challenge, as we both started out as re- restorers, of um, making a watch in a really traditional way. So a lot of our tools and equipment. Uh, anywhere between 50 and 100 years old. And uh, we quite often end up having to restore the tools so we can work with them or we tailor them to what we need them to do. Um, and they're beautiful as well. Yeah. So and you're they doing all have it names. because it's beautiful. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, I'm never happier than when I'm in my workshop getting my hands dirty, covered in grease and swarf. That's kind of my, that's my zen place. <laughs> all right. You've written a book, Seven Watches. What happens in the seven watches? Well, I'm writing the book. The book's actually, um, it's going to be out next year. So I'm still in the middle of writing and researching it at the moment. But it takes us on a journey through um, from our discovery of time right the way through to watchmaking in the 21st century and where we stand with watches in an era where we all have mobile phones and computers and don't really need them anymore. Okay, hang on. <laughs> when we discovered time, didn't... Wasn't Og the ancient? I feel like time must have always been there. Yeah, yeah. It's the the sun was always going up and down in the sky, and stars were moving around. And it it was that point we realised there was a pattern, there was a cyclic nature to these phenomena that were going on around us. And if we started measuring them, then we could start to understand the world more and that's everything from following migrating animals so if you're hunting if you're a hunter-gatherer it's really important to know where the animals are going to be at any given time um right the way to the age of agriculture we started farming we need to know when it's going to be wet dry cold uh, when to harvest and yeah it's, it's, all it's, kind the, of it's the ability to think about in. the future it's a very mm. it's a back to bill's earlier point it's a huge abstraction that you're not just chasing problems of the right now but you can imagine what will be happening a week or a month or a year from now yeah you can get really philosophical about it it's kind of they they haven't found the evidence that sort of 30 40,000 years ago our ancestors were thinking long term but at the same time you have things like um cave art so rock paintings are around so 
Our ancestors must have been aware that there were people before them that they shared no living memory or relation with doing things in times gone by and that when they were creating these things too, that in generations to come, someone else would be seeing them. So there must have been that kind of tipping point where we started to think over duration more and more and that duration extended out. And yeah, trying to think how we first really came about that is, um, yeah, it's incredible really. So about this book, you're starting with the oldest known watch? Um, I start off, uh, well, I go right the way back to the kind of discovery of time, as I put it, which goes back tens of thousands of years through to the first watch that we what, know about. Where do you think time was where humans or pre-humans first recognized time? Africa would have been. Africa. So yeah. somewhere around South Africa, Zimbabwe, mm. that kind of an mm. area. Um, and you see that kind of knowledge move up and it, uh, northwards. And, and a lot of it goes into the foundation of what we think of now as um, ancient Egypt. So a lot of that was based on that kind of flow of knowledge and um, increasing awareness of the world around us. And of course, that moves across into Mesopotamia and so on. So we have that yeah, we think of the pyramids and things now that um, the ancient Egyptians were avid astronomers. So that they were the first, they discovered the 365-day year. Um, and that was based on observation of the stars. So that was um, Canis Major, the dog star, would appear in the same point of the sky to coincide with the flooding of the Nile. And they noticed that happened every 365-day night. Uh, rotations so again like thousands of years ago we were aware and we were making these measurements over duration right you were alluding to the 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 first real timekeeping instrument what was that um well probably um we used to use kind of knotted strings and notches in bones as kind of tally sticks um so it started out with um basic tally tally charts um and so would you mark 365 notches on a bone um, it started off shorter time. duration, so it was started off sort of months and things, um, and then eventually worked up star charts. And uh, the first actual timekeepers would have been either gnomons or clepsydra, water thieves, which I quite like the translation of that, and that's a water clock. Um, and that was ancient Egypt and China as well were using gnomons as well. Those are sort of drip, um, drip-based clocks, is that the idea? Clepside, they can work in several different ways. So it basically just means a, a water-powered clock, but they can be anything from a bowl with a hole drilled into it, sat in another vessel of water, and the time it takes for the, the vessel with the hole in it to fill and sink would be a, a set amount of time. It's the um, escapement in drops of water. Yeah, exactly. Um, and again, <coughs> the, the other incredible thing that you got with uh, these early timekeepers is how they seem to very similar systems appear across the world, sometimes almost apparently quite independent of each other. So this obsession that we have with time is a universal human obsession. Um, so you get different systems, well, similar systems being used in uh, by Native Americans, by in China, in Africa, North Africa, and through the Middle East. And a lot of this is going on virtually independently. Um, as we kind of try to struggle to understand the world around us. Um, yeah, so it's it's really interesting how that goes, and then you get water power clocks, and then you get into mechanical clocks. So in the book, we're going to have seven clocks, right? Um, watches. So I, seven I'm, watches. Yeah. What's the difference between <laughs> a clock and a watch? <laughs> Bill, so come watches. on. Get, get with the <laughs> lingo, man. What, what are you talking about? Well, it, it, I know it does seem quite trivial, but for me it's quite – an important thing, aside from the fact watchmakers and clockmakers tend to be quite different 
people you know watchmakers are cooler i would say um, oh sure obviously, <laughs> obviously. Yeah. clockmakers um, are just a drag you go to a party <laughs> with clockmakers it's, uh, there's nothing it's yeah we actually say that clock making is what watchmakers do when they start to lose their eyesight Ooh. <laughs> oh burn. Um, yeah so uh, yeah the difference is that they're portable and wearable watches and that for me is a really important transition because it's the moment when Timekeepers go from being bystanders in history to active participants. And that was how my re, uh, my research and my interest in the history of watchmaking as much as making the watches themselves really started as looking at the objects and examining them, taking them apart. And um, my PhD thesis did, looked at forensic analysis of very early forgeries um, of English watches that dated from the 18th century, looking for hidden marks, messages, looking at metallurgy of them to try and find out who was making them. So when you say a forgery, mm-hmm. what you're trying to sell a watch, like nowadays people sell fake Rolexes, you're trying to sell a Rolex that's not a Rolex kind of something? Yeah, it's been going on for hundreds of years. This also ties in with the very early beginnings of mass production in watches and watchmaking, which again, really important. It's the democratization of time as uh, mechanical watches, um, even to the point of Harrison and Harrison's first chronometers were incredibly expensive things. So unless you're a member of the royal family or um, the aristocracy, there's no way anyone could have afforded a watch. So this kind of the the introduction through the Industrial Revolution was going on then as well and cutting costs of watches, which eventually was um, perfected in the US with the likes of Hamilton and Elgin and Waltham. Um, and the dollar watch, obviously, too. Um, well, so, in the uh, you know, there's an expression, at least in American English, you know, a Swiss watch, meaning it's this elegant, smooth-running, whatever it is. Yeah, but it wasn't always the case. So these, going back to the forgeries, these forgeries appear at a time when the UK, when England was the home of watchmaking. So if you wanted one of the best watches in the world, you'd want a British watch, particularly a London watch. Um, So this was before brands as well. So we we didn't really know the names of watchmakers so much. We went for London over whoever the name of the watchmaker. You probably didn't know because this was pre-Instagram. Um, God, so what do people <laughs> do all day? Man. Um, good question. Um, <laughs> some of them worked incredibly hard and others enjoyed that. <laughs> yes. I think is is the general division of labor um, during industrialization. But uh, yeah, so um, it's this process. We see these uh, watches that appear that they were called Dutch forgeries because they look aesthetically like Dutch watches that were being made at that time. But they were signed as being made in London with uh, fictitious names that there's no evidence that these people ever existed, let alone as watchmakers. And uh, when I first found one and started looking them up, um, I saw reference that they were made in Switzerland. So you had a Swiss-made Dutch-style forgery of an English watch. And this was kind of this... And and were they really inferior in terms of their timekeeping? It was that was that the whole point? They could use cheaper materials and just yeah, pass cheaper thinner gauges, um, lower quality materials. Uh, although they did still function, and this is the incredible thing, I think this is before we'd harnessed electricity for things like motorized lasers or lighting, um, and we were making working watches. Um, so they're still impressive in that leather way. belts, yeah, yeah, to turn lathes and stuff. What are the seven watches? I, I, I'm just I'm crazy for this. Start out with water <laughs> clocks. Then we have London watches. Um, well, the first watch was South German. 
Um, and then we move into English watches. Um, so you, the kind of world's watch industry moves from Germany into England. Then you kind of get this um, American takeoff that appears a similar time to the Swiss takeoff. But the Swiss are the ones that really perfect the industry. And then Switzerland is still running with it to this day. Although for how long? That's, that's going to be another Till question. Till you take so. over the world. Science Rules will be right back. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. You're listening to Science Rules. Has our relationship to time, to watches and timekeeping changed over the last few centuries, or is it this continual hope to find it more and more accurate, uh, to reckon time more and more accurately? Um, I think our relationship with time itself has changed dramatically since we understood it more and since it seeped into our lives more. So you go back before mechanical clocks, which started out as um, big public timekeepers. So the first clocks were the sort of things you got in turrets, in cathedrals or town halls, um, and very much kind of tied to religion in Europe. And uh, actually, the first clocks are called clocks from the medieval French and Latin clocker for bell. So they didn't have a dial or a face. They just struck the hours on bells, and that was it. Um, but as these clocks start to appear, it starts to regulate our life and we get the introduction of something we refer to as clock time, which is very specifically the the way that we started to adapt our lives around the hours of the day and regiment ourselves. And this is something that leads into the Industrial Revolution and how we ended up with a nine to five. Why do we work a nine to five? How, um, how do we kind of decipher these hours starting through trade and commerce and the need to organise ourselves better to build society? By the time you get to industrialization, things are so regimented for the working class, particularly like if you look at the UK and what was going on over here in factories so around the Midlands, which is where I'm from, you get kind of the, the heart and soul of the Industrial Revolution kicks off. And um, the way workers were regimented and the restriction of time. So you even get things like um, quotes from factories where, because this is just at the point when watches were getting cheaper and occasionally people were from other classes were able to afford to get a watch themselves or inherit one. And um, there are accounts of watches actually being confiscated in factories to prevent the general workers from having an awareness of the time. They only like the management to know the time. So, you know, if lunch got cut a bit short and your day got extended a bit longer, no one would know about it. No one could complain. So, So, you know, when you go to Las Vegas, Nevada to go gambling, there are no (laughs) clocks. Yeah. There there are no clocks in any of the casinos so that people, and it's quite common. You know, I've done jobs there. You get up. At six in the morning to catch the sunrise, five thirty in the morning to catch the sunrise, and there's people who've been up all night gambling. All right. Yeah. I believe you are the first watchmaker in the UK to earn a PhD in horology. Is this true? Uh, yes. It, to my knowledge, I'm yet to find another one, and um, I've been around for hey, a few years and no there. one's found. Yeah. <laughs> Say hello. <laughs> 
you're something of a pioneer. <laughs> I mean, were the were you the only woman going through the the program at the time? What was that like? Um, when I was a student, there were a couple of other women on the course, but um, yeah, I, having taught as well, you don't get as many women applying for the course to end up on the course to end up graduating and doing much, and there are still very few female independent watchmakers out there. But yeah, hopefully, that's going to change. I think it already is changing. Um, there certainly seem to be a lot more women in the industry um, who are being talked about. I think women have always been quite well present in the industry for, for hundreds of years, but it's just their stories don't tend to make it. I'm about to start a book on the Radium Girls, um, or reading a book by Kate Moore, um, who, again, a really important story from history about these women who were painting um, radium watch dials, luminous watch dials, and um, exposing themselves to what we now know to be a really horrific material and the impact that had on their health and their fight kind of fight for justice after that but these are the sort of things that kind of get hidden behind closed doors so you go back a um, hundred years or so and the majority of women in factory or people in factories were women and there's still a lot of women in swiss factories now working on production line work but you'd get very few female master watchmakers so it's that transition between technicians to master watchmaker is um, where the breakdown happens. How do you become a master watchmaker? Um, uh, time. <laughs> Get it? But, See what yeah, she did there? Time. See what she did there for um, it? Time. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. Uh, this is the real challenge in watchmaking as well, is that um, there are very few opportunities to train as master watchmakers. So um, most of the industry just wants technicians now because everything is computer numeric control and um, computer design software. So people design stuff on computers, put it into a machine that does all the work for us, and then you just get humans to assemble them at the other end. Um, as a result, there are less and less jobs and opportunities for people to sit with a master watchmaker and spend the time it takes to really refine your skills. So a technician can learn in a year to do their basic job, whereas a master watchmaker, traditionally the apprenticeship was seven years, followed by about another two to three year journeymanship, so about 10 years before you become a, a master. So how many masters are there in the world, master watchmakers? A dozen? 500? Um, there's 10, probably 000? across the world, there's probably a few now. I mean, if you look at the AHCI, which is um, a federation based in Switzerland that represents independent watchmakers, I think they have about 30 on their books, but there are more than that. Um, but we're pretty sparse and dispersed around now, obviously a lot in Switzerland, but some brilliant watchmaking going on in Japan, in the US, and we've got a few in the UK as well, in Germany and Austria. So, um, it sounds yeah. like a few dozen. Hmm. Not yeah, a few thousand. Not a few thousand, no. I think that would be that's, amazing. Wow. That's amazing. All right. Corey. <laughs> Wait, B Bill. I, Do I, you hear that? I, I hear something. A thunderous crashing, uh, uh, like the thunderous crashing of thunder from lightning, which tells me that it is time, time, for the lightning round. The lightning okay. round. <laughs> Rebecca, do you have a favorite famous clock like the one commonly referred to as big ben do you have a do you have a favorite famous clock um can i choose a watch <laughs> sure yes oh, absolutely um, oh yeah okay, yes that's an uh, that's also an option i would probably have to go for a watch i serviced a while ago that had a fingerprint baked into it that was 250 years old that i found by a london watchmaker called wilson john wilson so wow. that, it's his allowed? fingerprint it's quite on specific the... 
That, that's um, great. So that would be, yeah. that'd be your, your desert your desert island watch if you uh, yeah, you're trapped on yeah. a desert island with one mine. watch. I yes. wish it was mine. But uh, yeah, so um, on the underside of the dial, it would be the dial enamel painter. So enamel is baked glass and mm. um, it accidentally fired in um, their thumbprint into it. So this was back in sort of 1770, 1780. Um, wow. And at that time, we'd have had no real indication that fingerprints were unique either. So it was a total accident and had no idea. I took this watch apart, took the dial off and saw this print and was just like, oh. Wow, like just looking into the past. Now, is this one of the seven watches that will be in your book or is this a whole different story? A whole different story. There's so many stories. <laughs> okay, we're in the lightning round, dog. Okay, yeah, sorry, yes. I'm really okay. No, no, I'm sorry. It's, it's, I'm supposed <laughs> to manage much. this. So, so is there a watch you hate? Is there like, dig, do you hate digital watches or what have you? No, no, they're, they're just different. I don't get excited about them. There's nothing I really hate. No. All no. right, okay. There's no, no hate in your heart. No, all love. How many watches do you have? Oh, blimey. Oh, I don't know. Don't tell my I, husband. I'm just nobody <laughs> and they're all inexpensive, but I have, you know, two dozen or something. They accumulate. Uh, if you're counting projects I'm working on at the moment, probably about 20, 25. Oh, really? They're just two dozen? I thought it might be 500 I thought, or something. I thought you were going to have a number they're like that. They're not all expensive fancy things. They're just, yeah, weird stuff that I find in tins at car boot sales, some of them, but look cool. So, um, so if if you could travel <laughs> back in time to some era of watchmaking, is there an era you'd want to live in other than this one? Um, there was a watchmaker in Paris called Breguet at the end of the 18th century, turn of the 19th century, and I'd love to have worked in his workshop. I think that Why? would be really cool. Um, aside from the fact he was a brilliant watchmaker and um, contributed so many incredible inventions, we still use many of them today, um, he was just an extraordinary person. I mean, he was making luxury watches in the French Revolution and made them for both Napoleon and Wellington and King George in England. And he was they, playing both they didn't sides cut of his the head off. Yeah. <laughs> it's amazing. He was just so, so good that he seemed to get away with it. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But wow. amazing, amazing character. So to have been around, I think, in, in Paris at that time and to see that kind of a watchmaker at work would have been, yeah. That would All be. right. In the lightning round, is there something surprising, something that really took you off guard doing, let's say, research for your book? Oh, um, I suppose it, it wasn't until I started researching my book I realised just how long we've known about time. So the first possible timekeeper is around 40,000 years old, which that, that really took me back. Um, wow. Yeah, so... Okay, yeah, that, yeah. here's your chance to cash in on your business relations. If uh, one of our listeners is, lo- is looking for a good, affordable mechanical watch do you have any recommendations besides yours uh well mine we only make our first ones we're making ourselves two four eight we're only making five so that's uh, and they've all already sold so um niche very niche um but mechanical watches the best i think really super affordable mechanical watches at the moment swatch are doing some really cool um mechanical watches i have a i have a mechanical swatch watch system 51 uh, is it yeah and so it's a swatch stands uh, my understanding was it stands for second watch right yeah you are you have your primary and then you get this backup watch this is just cool this is just cool we could go on for a long (laughs) what Corey? time Talking about this. Dur- Wait, duration. <laughs> you went for long, a long duration. time. 
because the whole thing is fascinating and clocks and watches have changed the world. They have changed the way we interact with each other. They just the, describing as somebody as punctual or always late or what have you is just such a part of our culture and everything we do, like having this computer interaction podcast created with digital technology relies on extraordinary timekeeping. Knowing when we need to wrap up the conversation. Oh, and oh I see, Bill. Yes. <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. But but wait, bef- but before we wrap up, there is something, this is a, a, sort of a digression out of the lightning round, but I wanted to ask, we're all in this weird sort of time-free zone of, of pandemic isolation, but you're surrounded by timepieces. Does that does it help you? Does it make it weirder or does it not have any effect? Does it help you to be surrounded by time while other people are just kind of swimming through it's their the schedules? constant ticking, putting the pressure on. Um, exactly, yes. Or is it comforting? I find I now find it comforting. Um, I went through a point of trying not to think about it too much, but I tried to take quite a stoic view of time and our relationship stoic? with it. Yes. Like yeah, it's passing so. and there's nothing we can do about it. Exactly. <laughs> Go with the flow. Like it's, we can't control it. You can't fight it. So we will just roll with it. It really is amazing, you guys. Everybody, I hope you all will stop and think about how watches and clocks have changed have changed us have changed the way we think about our place in the cosmos oh, this has just been cool thank you rebecca thank you so much for joining us today to talk about the history and science of time our guest today everyone has been dr rebecca struthers she is the first watchmaker in the uk to earn a phd in horology and the author of the upcoming book hands of time the story of horology in seven watches so remember when it comes to studying time itself Science rules. Science rules. If you like science rules, I hope you do. Please take a moment to rate and review it in Apple Podcasts and on Stitcher. It helps us out, helps other people learn about the show. So thank you. Be sure to look at all my socials for more information on our upcoming guests. I'm at Bill Nye on everything. Meanwhile, if you'd like to leave us a voicemail, please do. Give us a call at 201-472-0785 here in the States or submit a question to askbillnye.com. Science Rules is produced by Harry Huggins and the very same Corey S. Powell. Frank Olson mixed oh, yeah. this episode. Casey Halford composed our original theme. Josephine Mortarana is our executive producer. And it's Stitcher Science Rules, everyone. So, Dr. Struthers, thank you so much, Rebecca, for taking the time to talk with us about watchmaking. <laughs> Stitcher. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com.